to explore hope these next uh, hours together, day and a half together, we're going to be enrolling Paul's ancient letter to the church in Rome. And so right out of the gate in the letter, the first couple of pages, you get to see that the beacon of our hope is the gospel of Jesus, chapter 116, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And there's a backstory to that introduction, to that first uh, verse, that first thought. Some famous words, but there's something behind that that I want to kind of set the stage for. So for a few minutes before we get to our first uh, preaching uh, voice today. Let me set the background for this a little bit. Imagine with me this. Let's see if we can try to go back several centuries. Imagine that you've been growing up as a Christian Roman citizen in the first century. Imagine you're a Christian Roman citizen. Your city's populated by about a million people. It's a melting pot of ideas with a great diversity. It's, it includes a pretty large segment of a Jewish community, maybe 40-some thousand of them. You felt the racial tensions in your city. Those, those Jewish outsiders, kind of a sizable minority, they're pretty influential. And, uh, and you remember, in your family at least, how despised they were. <laughs> But you would credit the Jewish Christians because they brought the gospel from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and they planted that seed in the soil of Rome, and those gospel seeds have taken root even in your life. And so you're grateful living in Rome at this time. You're growing to love those Jewish Christians. But you also know of, well, they, they created quite a disturbance and, you know, not wanting to pay their taxes, just for example. And, and you remember the Roman Emperor Claudius, how he reacted when he expelled those, those Jewish folks, at least the non-Roman citizens. He expelled them, if you recall, it was AD 49. He expels them, and all of a sudden, your home church felt different. I mean, maybe, if you're honest, you felt a bit of relief, because now maybe the tension has subsided. So who's now in charge of the church? Who's leading things? Maybe maybe some of the Jewish citizens still remaining, maybe maybe some of those maturing Christians, you know, godly leaders that grew up uh, as non-Jews in Rome. You you felt some of the tension kind of begin to mount though as people began to lobby for authority and posturing and boy the divisions really kind of blossomed in the church when Emperor Claudius died. Six years later, A.D. 54, and with him into the grave went this decree of the Jewish expulsion. So all of a sudden, those Jewish Christians once expelled are now allowed to come back home. And you're wondering, how are things going to change? And when they begin coming home, the tensions kind of crescendo. Again, those Jewish influencers return to see Gentile leaders leading your church. And you saw firsthand the, the posturing for power and who's beginning to take place in, in power controls and non-Jews and Jews thinking they were each in charge of Christ's bride. And you got some really ugly, ugly characteristics of entitlement and favoritism and slander and division Oh, those uglies actually revealed how unhealthy your home church was. And the fault actually was pretty equally shared. I'm, you remember one Sunday uh, when an, an elder welcomed a guest. Her name was Phoebe. She was, she was carrying a letter from Apostle Paul who, who had never been to your city, but you'd heard about him. And your, your ears pricked up when you heard the apostle was expressing his desire to want to visit 
you and your church and establish an apostolic foundation for the, for the churches there. Boy, you remember this feeling of being special and, and this sense that the, the apostle thought you were important enough to want to come visit and you felt it was, you really felt it was necessary. You need an outside authority to come to kind of settle some things. And so this letter that Paul writes kind of circulates among the house churches in Rome and it was around, you know, 55, 56 AD and Paul had been informed about what was going on in this church and sort of the unhealthy conditions. So he wrote, he wrote to unite the Jewish and the Gentile believers for the sake of the gospel mission that he wasn't ashamed of. And you recall Paul's desire. You remember Paul's desire to take the gospel even further west to Spain and he needed the church in Rome to be a a united launching pad for him to go to Spain and he needed this church, this fractured church to become whole and one again, something you've been praying about for, uh, for many years. You recall Paul's purpose statement near the end of the letter? It stuck out to you near the end in chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How was Paul gonna pull that off? What was he suggesting with regards to creating harmony? How could that be a reality? By representing the gospel hope. By reminding us of the gospel hope, you remember the thesis back in chapter one, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God's revealed from faith to faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul, the apostle, writes, and he shares his passion into this divided situation. He believed the gospel power had the power to make us one again, marked by faith in Jesus, the Messiah who rescues equally from sin and death. If you haven't picked up yet, this letter is not just some abstract theological treatise that Paul woke up one morning and thought he would write. This actually is something that Paul, in the annals of history, was motivated to write because of a situation in the church in ancient Rome. And Paul wrote pretty theologically deep in order to address a specific situation in Rome, a significant city in the empire. And we can learn a lot, I think, from the timeless advice Paul gave those first century believers. The letter can be divided several ways. If we can make it the easiest way, there's at least two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 11, discusses the church's identity by the mercies of God. And such themes are really standing out in those first 11 verses. The righteousness of God available through Messiah, not through Torah anymore. All of sin and can can be justified by faith in Messiah. And the gospel assures that Jesus reversed the curse and that we are freed from being flesh-minded, now being spirit-minded, and how God's plan has always been to unite a remnant of believers into one people of God. Those first 11 chapters, mercy is transformative, and it produces in us a tree, a family tree with deep roots that we get to be grafted into. First 11 chapters talk about our identity by God's mercy. But it's the second half of the letter that we're going to spend some time on. It discusses the church's behavior in those mercies of God. We're going we're gonna to focus in on chapters 12 through 15, this morning, this evening, this afternoon, this evening, and tomorrow, living in harmony in light of the gospel hope so that we can be a beacon 
of hope. So we've identified six staff and faculty members at Boise Bible College to guide us in each main session. They're going to shed light on a portion of the Roman letter. And to start us off, Ben Williams, our preaching professor, comes to guide us in living the good life. This conference is a good thing. These are good days to be together. And as we get back together, we almost always ask, how are things? How is church? How is the college? How is your family? And the response we really want to hear is, good. How are things at the college? You're really hoping that we will say, good. As we came out of the pandemic, over the last year, as of getting back together with people from churches around the Northwest, I, I heard two different stories. Either things are really hard or things are really good. But what is good? We are almost always referring to circumstances, even if we know better. It is such a common greeting. How are you? We almost never mean it when we say good even when we are referring to our circumstances, and even when they're going the way we would like for them to go. Can we admit that we would like to live the good life? Coming to the end of the school year, I'm looking forward to a couple of days off. Those will be good days. Can we admit that we want the good life even though we know we're not to live a life pursuing leisure? We want things to be good. Jesus once had an interaction with a rich young ruler, and the conversation quickly moved from what is good to who is good. Well, not the text for the conference. I'd like to slow down, focus on just a few words in both the story of the rich young ruler and our verses from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 this morning. Because in order to experience what is good, we have to know what is good. I think that the rich young ruler felt some tension. And if we're honest, we might feel a similar tension because we want a good life. We wonder, are we doing good? Are we doing good enough? Don't we? And I think we need to hear the words of Jesus in this story that there is only one who is good. Like this man, there's a, there's a question I wrestle with. Even more than what is good and am I doing good? The question is, am I acceptable? Am I valuable? I have advanced degrees and I love my position. I love what I get to do at the college. But I really wrestle with this. I so often wonder, am I acceptable? And I doubt that in this room, I'm alone. I admit I have some approval addiction, and I dread class evaluations, because I honestly wonder if I've just missed it. As I'm trying to teach the Bible, have I been good enough? And some days I wonder if I've advanced very far from middle school, where the only thing I wanted was to be accepted. Maybe I'm not alone. Maybe you're a preacher and you wrestle with some of these issues. As you've come out of the pandemic and moved from the digital back to the, to the in-person sessions, not all the families have come back. 
and the numbers aren't where they used to be, and the numbers aren't where you want them to be, and you wonder, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Or maybe you wonder if you've been an effective parent, and you wonder if you're taking a stand for the right things, and if you have been the best influence. And maybe like me, you want to know, am I really acceptable as a living sacrifice? My goal is to give you some hope this morning. But perhaps you ask a related question, what is the will of God? This is a great sense of anxiety for students. What is God's will for me in ministry? Is God's will for me in ministry? And more importantly to many of them, is it God's will for me to marry this person? Students wrestle with this and have a great deal of anxiety. Maybe we do as well. You ever feel similar? Is it God's will for me to stay here and keep grinding it out and keep doing the work here in this place when I honestly don't know if there are good days in the future or not? As the text was read this morning from Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, did you hear the words, or like me, do you sometimes glance over them because you've heard them too many times? So what is God's will? Let me answer that from the end of these verses. God's will is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And those should be the words of dreams, but so often for me, they are the words of anxiety. What if we can determine what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect? This morning, I want to encourage you that we can live the good life by knowing what is good. And I want to start with the end of those verses. At the end of verse 2 is this phrase that you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are first to discern what is good. You will hear much over the next 24 hours about the next generation of church leaders. I wonder, is the next generation watching us determine what to do? Or do they see in us a fixed state based on what has happened before? Are they watching us wrestle? Or when they look at us, do they assume we already think we know? We already have a list of what is good and what is not good. I grew up with a list, and maybe you did too, of things that were not good. Things like drinking alcohol and watching R-rated movies and, and gambling. But that list did not come from a simple reading of the Bible. That list came from generations before discerning from reading the Bible that some things are just not good. But it was passed down to us as an assumption. And over generations, they're no longer seeing us wrestle and discerning. They're seeing a fixed list and they may not understand it. When's the last time you asked, is this behavior, this choice, this stance, is it good? Those questions are not just for teenagers and young adults. They're for me. And I would guess they're for you as well. In recent years, even in recent days, we've seen some political issues rise that are very important to believers. I wonder if the next generation needs to see me discerning the will of God before proclaiming the will of God. Are we asking, is this good 
Is it God's will? So how do we decide what to do? I think this passage is about actions we take. But how do we decide what is good and what is not good? I have not defined what is good. There are many lists in Scripture. Those are clear. We don't need to fight about those even with others when they disagree with us. The lists are there and they are clear. But there are so many things that are not clear in Scripture and we need more discernment. Because in this text, we're not just determining which actions are good and not good. We are discerning the will of God. God's will that is good and acceptable. I started at the end, and I'm going to work backwards through these two verses. So how do we know if something is good? By discerning. How do we discern? By knowing God. And by testing. We can live the good life by testing what is good. We discern by testing, by trying things out. And I wonder if that means I might get it wrong sometimes. That's not easy for me. Maybe not every program is the will of God. I felt this pressure. Maybe you have too. If I want to start something new, I I need to express it as God has revealed this to me as his will that we should do this. Well, what happens when it doesn't go well? I wonder if sometimes we need to do more discerning before we get there and we need to test what is good. Try it out. Are we testing to discern what is good or do we just assume we already know? Over the last two years, we've had to test a lot in the church as as we've gone digital. This morning, I was wrestling with some things. I was, you know, praying about this text and making sure I had my message clear and also worrying that, that I have the HDMI cable to do my workshop. You've been through that in the last two years, haven't you? But most of the time, we're testing to see if our actions are effective, And we're looking for results, and we know we work in a field where results are difficult to measure, especially in the short term. Are we asking, is it good? Or have I been too busy asking, does it work? Is it sustainable? How long can I keep doing things this way? I wonder if by testing what is good, we can figure out better what is good and be more acceptable and grow toward perfect. That is the will of God. So can we test the will of God in the church? Can we test what is good in the church? Can the next generation see us test and decide if some things are good? See, some things we're doing are fine. They're not evil. But they might have been based on tradition and not truly good. I'm wrestling with that. We need to admit we're dealing with a generation who has heard that we need to be ready to burn down everything institutional and start over. They're ready to test. Maybe they need to see it in us. What if we made it a practice to get in a room? To get in a room and discuss? What if we made it a practice to get in a room with some young adults who make decisions that we find questionable? And and we get in a room with high schoolers who think that a hoodie is is dressier than a button-down. And we all get together in the same room and we test what is good. Not simply what is effective or trendy or appealing, but we ask, what is good? What if we got together multi-generationally in the same room and we opened the Bible together and we looked for principles, 
We were trying to know God more than we were trying to be right. What if we showed them where we think we know the answer, but we're willing to open the Bible together and test it, try it out, and let them see us do that? Be willing to see that not everything we think is good and is the will of God. Now, don't worry about how conservative I am. I am extremely biblically conservative. I'm absolutely not willing to throw out anything that the Bible is clear about, but maybe, but just maybe, we can start modeling for a younger generation what it looks like to test and discern and move past confirmation bias and eisegesis. In other words, assuming I'm right and going and trying to prove I'm right. Because we can't expect them to do so if we're not willing to show them that we can do so as well. And I wonder if what Paul is saying here, that that is how we find, discern the will of God, rather than merely assuming we already knew the will of God. I wonder if we often get frustrated that we don't know God's will because we have not spent enough time discerning and testing what is good. I think we can do that with the big issues of our day. But perhaps that'll be a little easier if we start with our small things, the other issues in our daily lives. What we watch, what we listen to, what we say. Are we discerning, is it good? And I'm not just talking about bad words. I'm talking about those big sins named in the Bible, like gossip, which we do. Like complaining, which is a form of gossip. Which we, did you hear me say we, do? I think this needs to be constant. I think we need to do it more often. I think we need to regularly ask those questions, is it good? I'm not talking about paranoia. That will not give you hope. But maybe we need to ask more often, is what I'm doing, is what I'm saying good? So what do I spend a lot of time doing? What do I spend a lot of time thinking or thinking about? Maybe it's not all good. Over the next two weeks, I'm going to do the following because I'm convicted by these verses. I'm going to examine a couple things in my life and ask, is it good? I'm going to ask about what I watch. What's on the screen in front of me, whether it's a big screen or a little bitty screen? And I'm going to ask, is it good? Because can I admit, I waste time on my phone. And as I'm exhausted, especially at the end of the school year and I'm emotionally exhausted, it's a whole lot easier to just kind of waste time and not actually think about it. So I'm starting to ask the question, is it good? And I'm also going to ask that question about one area of church. I had the privilege of working with a small group of youth most Sunday mornings. And I'm starting to ask this question, is what I'm doing with these young men good? Or is it simply going through the motions? Am I just working through curriculum? Or is what I'm doing good? You know, whether or not they come back next Sunday, that's easy to measure. Whether or not it's good, God and I need to spend some time talking about this. So let me challenge you with this. I want you to think about what is one thing you are doing on Sunday? What's part of your normal routine at church? And what is one thing you are doing on Monday? Not at church. Maybe it'd be worth your time to test and see if it is good then we might know better what the will of God is and we might find ourselves more acceptable and moving toward perfect. 
If you've gotten lost, it may be because I'm working backwards through the text. It may also be because I'm a long-winded teacher. Sorry about that. We started with discerning what is the will of God. How do we do that? We do that by testing what is good. Now can we come to the beginning, to the really big stuff? The part at the beginning of these two verses in Romans 12, the living sacrifice that maybe you have heard about for years or decades, and you've heard it so many times that you glance over it. I have that temptation. So I invite you to slow down and hear these familiar words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It is no small thing that the word acceptable is in both verse 1 and verse 2. Some translations will render that word as pleasing, pleasing to God. That which is acceptable to God. And can I say, that is what I long for. I want to do the good and I want to know that it's acceptable to God. And doing good things is restated throughout the New Testament. So we come to the more common parts of these two verses. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Sounds to me like actions. Things we can do in the physical world. Things that we can choose to perform. And I think those transfer over into spiritual worship. It has once again become very popular to refer to oneself as a spiritual person. That is vague. That is unclear. But what's the connection here? The spiritual worship in the areas we cannot see is connected to the living sacrifice of the body, the actions that can be seen by others. And that is measurable and testable. Our living sacrifice, defined by good deeds done in this body, transfer over into spiritual worship. So far this morning, we've talked about things we can do, including discerning and testing. Discerning what God says is good by testing if what we are doing is in fact good. But at the beginning, in this most familiar part of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we have passive verbs. I have a teenage son at home. We sometimes use, he sometimes uses to me passive language. The garbage didn't get taken out. <laughs> and I encourage him to use active language. I didn't take the garbage out. <laughs> the verbs we've looked at in this text so far have been active verbs. And now we come to two passive verbs. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. These are passive imperative, which sounds like an oxymoron, but they are definitely not active. How do we offer our physical bodies as spiritual worship? How do we become a living sacrifice for spiritual worship? At some level, it's not only about what we do, but it's about submitting to the passive. I've spoken on these familiar verses to young people many times. And I'm sure that I am guilty of making these verbs active rather than passive. Telling young people to actively not conform. 
Stay away from those people you don't wish to imitate. Stay away from people who are not like Christ. That may be good advice, but that's not the essence of the verb here. Let me explain it a little closer to home. I am part of Gen X. That means I'm getting a little older. I'm becoming one of the older generations as there are now a couple behind me who are in active leadership in the church. But let me talk to you about Gen X. I think we are guilty of actively pursuing things we thought were good in the church. And we had good reasoning for it. And we thought they were the right thing to do. But is it possible that by pursuing those things and not testing enough if they're good and if they're God's will, that we passively became conformed to the world? And according to statistical measurables, that's exactly what happened. Because it is almost impossible to determine the difference between the church and the world. I think my generation passively conformed to the world and we didn't even know we were doing it. In preparing this message, I have been convicted that I need to test more things to see if they are actually good because I want the next generation to know God's will, to know what is accept acceptable. So now I'm a little less worried about the next generation conforming to this world because I'm a bit more convicted that some of us have already done so. Testing, discerning, and I need to let the next generation see me testing and discerning. Many of those will be easy tests. They're clearly explained in the Bible. But there's so many things that need a little bit more work. I think conforming to this world becomes much less of a threat if I focus on the active verbs, discerning and testing, and focusing on the other passive verb. Be transformed. Be changed. Let someone change you. How? How can I change this physical body into a living sacrifice that is a spiritual act of worship? We can live the good life by being transformed into what is truly good. Be transformed. Be changed by the renewal of your mind. It's in the mind. It's about renewing. And that's not even a verb. Our minds are to be made new, made better. So what are we thinking about? Do we fill our minds so much that we don't have time to let them be renewed? I'm guilty of that. Let me say again, we need to model these things to the next generation, but they are not to be conformed to us. They are to be transformed into a holy and acceptable sacrifice to and by the only one who is good. Think differently. Focus on different things. Not just young people. We need to do it as well. What things? Ask what is good. Test and discern. This morning I've emphasized doing good things by thinking about what is good and what is bad. Because the will of God is good and acceptable. It's pleasing to God. It's satisfying to Him. And you know what? When I'm doing that, it is also satisfying to me. I want that kind of good life. I want to please Him. But have I let God Almighty renew and refresh my mind? Or has my mind been stuck for a while? 
thinking I already know. We can determine what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable. And this morning, I want you to feel like you can do this. I want you to feel like you can know the difference. You can live what God calls the good life. Otherwise, we wouldn't be challenged to do so in these verses. Remember the students I talked about earlier? Heard them mentioned a couple of times this morning. Each August, I meet a new crop of students, and I'm excited about their potential and what they have to offer. And tomorrow, we plan to graduate a new crop of students, and I'm anxious about what they have to do in the kingdom. God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. That last word has been both an inspiration to me in ministry and troublesome for me to understand. Does it mean morally perfect? Or does it mean growing towards spiritual maturity? And so I went back and once again did some Greek word study and I clearly determined that it means both. You know, this over here that I cannot obtain and this over here, spiritual maturity, that I strive for, I long for. But it kind of has both meanings. And then I saw a TV show. Describe this Greek word, telos, this way. The Greek word telos has a feeling of potential. The telos for an acorn is an oak tree. And so we look at these young people. We look at those who are going to graduate tomorrow. And we celebrate their potential. We celebrate that they are becoming telos, mature, complete, perfect. Maybe it's time we reverse that. Maybe it's time that's what they saw in us. Not that we were there, but that we were growing towards that. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, to telos, perfection on the day of Christ Jesus. God's not done with us yet. Let's partner with him to become what he wants us to be, to do his will. And let's let the next generation and the world around us see that. Not that we have arrived, but we are discerning and testing what is actually good. Can I leave you today with encouragement that you can actually live the good life? Otherwise, I don't think Paul would have challenged us with these verses to do so. We can model this because of Jesus. And maybe if we do, life will get just a little more good. And maybe that will give us hope in the darkness.